Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China and the Pacific Island nation of Nauru have officially resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. The Chinese presidents met in Beijing with the visiting prime minister from Antigua and Barbuda. The head of the UN's repeated his call for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza while speaking to an open meeting of the Security Council. In business, strong revenue and profit numbers for China's state-owned enterprises. In sports, previewing the men's final at the Australian Open. In culture and entertainment, this year's Oscar nominees. Now checking the day's top stories. The People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru have resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. A joint communique on the resumption of relations has been released. Nauru's recognized that China is the sole legal government representing the whole of China, and Taiwan's an inalienable part of Chinese territory. The two sides agree to exchange ambassadors as early as possible and to provide each other with all the necessary assistance for the establishment of embassies and their performance of functions in each other's capital. Dong Shui reports. Foreign ministers from China and Nauru have signed a joint communique uh, on the resumption of diplomatic ties in Beijing here right behind me in these podiums to re-establish the diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru. With the move marking uh, Nauru, the 183rd country's established diplomatic relations with China. When Nauru's foreign minister earlier said here that its government recognized that there is but one China in the world, that's the government of the People's Republic of China, being the sole legal government representing the whole of China, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory. What well, he said, and I quote, we look forward to this new chapter of relationship between Nauru and China. It will be built on strength, built on development strategy, it will also have a synergy of policies, and we will have good collaboration and shared governmental principles that both our countries will enjoy. Well, Obviously, both sides have expressed willingness to the practical cooperation that's going to happen between Nauru and China. Well, the prospect is bright, the horizon is full of light, as the Nauru foreign minister has put it. Well, China's foreign minister Wang Yi said, well, this move again demonstrates that the One China principle is in line with the global trends as well as the arc of history. And there is one, but only one China in this world. We look forward to working with Nauru to deepen political mutual trust, facilitate mutually beneficial cooperation and the friendship between the two peoples, and pushing bilateral relations to a higher level. And Nauru's foreign minister has also uh, said he was amazed how fabulous development, development of China's Guangzhou city is. And he's looking forward to his trip to Shanghai soon. And he would like to uh, share all the uh, developments with China as well. That was Dong Shui reporting. A Nauru official says the Belt and Road Initiative brings development opportunities to Pacific Island nations, and Nauru looks forward to more cooperation with China after the two nations resumed diplomatic relations. Director Joanna Olson of the Government Information Office of Nauru said that she's optimistic about future cooperation, particularly on climate change, water supply, and agriculture. Olson also looked forward to more exchanges between media to promote mutual understanding and people-to-people exchanges.
Meanwhile, under the approval of the two governments, China Media Group has set up a correspondent office in Nauru. And for more information about the Pacific Island nation of Nauru, Hona has this report. Located in central Pacific Ocean, Nauru is a small island country about 3,000 kilometers north of Australia. Again, independence in 1968 and joined the United Nations in 1999 with a land area of about 21 square kilometers and a population of about 13,000. The island's economy is mainly based on the export of phosphate and tropical fruits to Australia and New Zealand. It also issues licenses for fishing in its waters and has branched into an emerging tourism sector. Nauru is the 10th country to cut ties with the Taiwan region since 2016. Nauru's government says its decision is in accordance with the UN Resolution 2758, which recognized the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate representative of China in the United Nations passed in October 1971. It has had a significant impact on international relations and marked a major shift in global diplomatic recognition of China. So far, China has established relations with 183 countries. That was Ho Not reporting. And for more on the prospects of cooperation between China and Nauru, Chong Shi spoke to Professor Niu Li from Beijing Foreign Studies University. From your perspective, why has Nauru resumed ties with China? I think the most uh, intention for the re-established diplomatic relation with uh, China because uh, in the statement of Nauru government, it says for the best interest of the peoples of uh, Nauru. And also, w- what is the best interest that they said is the significant first step in moving forward for the Nauru uh, economic development. I think as uh, also, Nauru would like to show their own sovereignty. Uh, we know uh, Nauru and the uh, colonial subject for many years, and even it's uh, independent, it was in 1968, but right now, up to now, 56 years. Uh, they still have no uh, complete full sovereignty authority for governing their own government. So they have to, you know, end the kind of uh, pressure to Nauru. This time, they are re-established uh, diplomat tie with China. It shows their own full uh, sovereignty. And and also from China side, we uh, re-declare our one-China policy. This is more important. And also we are in the international community. We'll let international community to realize, to strengthen their one-China principle. Mm. We heard foreign ministers from both sides expressing very high hopes for the relationship with Foreign Minister Wang Yi saying that China stands ready to share opportunities brought by the Chinese path to modernization. And Nauru's Foreign Minister is saying that uh, Nauru looks forward to practical cooperation with China and that he was very impressed with technological advances um, that he saw in Shenzhen. What will be um, the benefits of resuming ties for both sides? Yeah, from uh, uh, Nauru's side, uh, they are from its uh, country's area. Area, we can tell the land area very small only 21 square kilometers but they have a very large uh, ocean area they have uh, 3.2 billion square kilometers so they expecting uh, first they realize its own economic need to explore another uh, more wider uh, opportunities as they are in 
the government they says to weigh out from the dead end of their economic. So uh, on the economic side, uh, narrow in the small land area, we can cooperate with uh, tourism because they are a uh, tropical uh, country tropical climate, so very suitable for the uh, tourists. And in the large ocean area, we can cooperate with uh, like fishery, uh, especially as uh, what I talked to the Nauru people, they said uh, from China, particularly from China, cooperate with Nauru for the farming, like stream farming in the ocean, and also the, for the traditional fish product like uh, tuna, those kind of uh, marine uh, fishery industries. That's Professor Niu Li from Beijing Foreign Studies University talking about the prospects of China-Nauru cooperation. And for more on the uh, reestablishment of diplomatic ties between the two countries, uh, George Quadina reports from the Pacific Island country. I am now at the Republic of Nauru. China and Nauru have established a diplomatic relation. Nauru announcement came only a few days after the country decided to sever its tie with Taiwan. I have talked with some residents here and the general mood is positive. They are happy to see more connection with China. They hope that China can help Nauru, Nauru develop in areas such as education and infrastructure. Um, there are also expectations in mutual beneficial exchange and cooperation in other areas. And that was George Kodina reporting from Nauru. A Chinese engineer says Nauru will benefit under new diplomatic ties with Beijing. Zhu Wei is the deputy manager of the Nauru Port Development Project under China Harbor Engineering Company. He says the resumption of diplomatic relations will have a positive impact on Nauru's international influence. As an engineer who has worked overseas for eight years, I hope to promote Chinese standards, Chinese technology, and professional knowledge in the future. The engineer adds that progress is made concerning the building of the port. When it's done, ships will be able to dock directly at the port. This will completely change the history of Nauru's maritime connections. Next, we'll continue to advance our work. That project is set to be completed next year. Chinese products have become increasingly popular among customers in Nauru. For residents of the island country, products made in China are an integral part of their daily lives. Chinese products have seen a steady increase in demand in the country in recent years, as evidenced by a rising number of Chinese restaurants and products. Uh, Jen Shiyi is the owner of a local grocery store in Nauru. He talked about uh, what kinds of products in a shop are the most welcome among local residents. I have owned the grocery store here for over three decades, and many of the products I sell come from China, such as the red beans, plain noodles, Cantonese steamed buns, toys, TVs, motorcycles, all from China, and they sell very well. In 2022, Nauru's imports from China exceeded 13 million U.S. dollars, a yearly increase of 16 percent. Coming up, a meeting in Beijing between the Chinese president and the prime minister of Nauru. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms and get ready to dive in. At 12 minutes past the hour.
Chinese President Xi Jinping has met Prime Minister Gaston Brown of Antigua and Barbuda. The Caribbean island's leader continues his week-long visit to China after arriving in Beijing on Monday. Earlier, he laid a wreath at the Monument of the People's Heroes in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, and Zheng Chunying has more. The Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda, Gaston Brown, laid a wreath at the Monument to the People's Heroes in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The monument was established to honor those who paid the ultimate price for national independence and freedom. He is also going to uh, hold talks and meet uh, with several Chinese uh, top officials. Uh, and he's also going to sign a couple of uh, documents. Earlier, he emphasized that to promote trade and economic ties is one of the main priorities of his trip. And he called for for more people-to-people exchanges and intensify coordination between the two countries. Well, the two countries' trade volume reached over 162 million U.S. dollars, and that is a year-on-year increase of over 70 percent. And China's imports from Antigua and Barbuda also increased by more than four times. And that fully reflects the vigorous vitality of economic and trade cooperation between the two sides, as the Premier put it. And he also added that uh, China and Antigua and Barbuda ties serves as a great example of collaboration between small countries and large ones. And uh, noting that this year marks the 40th anniversary of the establishment of bilateral ties, he said that the Antigua and Barbuda hopes its friendship with China could last forever and expressed willingness to strengthen practical cooperation with China in various fields, including infrastructure, uh, economy and trade, agriculture, environmental protection, and water Sources, and that it firmly adheres to the one China principle, uh, which is a solid cornerstone of bilateral relations that would never change. That was Zheng Chunying reporting. China's announced 30 new initiatives to protect human rights. The announcement came during the fourth round of the Universal Periodic Review by the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. The head of the Chinese delegation said China considers respecting and protecting human rights a crucial aspect of state governance. China adheres to a path of peaceful development, contributing to the cause of world human rights, bearing in mind the future of humanity and well-being of the people. China works to build a community with the shared future of mankind and make the world a better place for all. Chen Shu also said China's pursued a human rights development path that aligns with the current global trends and is suitable for its national conditions. He also said China adheres to people a people-centered approach and strives to improve the quality of life for its citizens. Chen told the meeting the Chinese delegations engaged in constructive dialogue with representatives from various countries in an open and transparent manner. A leading delegation of Japanese business leaders is in Beijing for the first time in four years. The group will hold talks with officials and other business leaders. Chen Zhuiban has that story. A delegation led by the head of the Japan-China Economic Association, Shindo Kose, begins a visit to China, the first trip to China by the organization since 2019. More than 200 representatives from the economic field are in the delegation. We consider China an important economic cooperation partner for Japan and we hope to strengthen the ties. A welcoming banquet was held on Tuesday evening. 
The China Council for the Promotion of International Trade hosted the event. The Japan-China Economic Association had sent a delegation to Beijing almost once a year since 1975, but it was suspended for the pandemic. The delegation will be in Beijing for four days. They are expected to meet with Chinese officials to discuss economic issues. The business leaders say they will use the opportunity to witness China's rapid growth firsthand. Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have agreed on building a strategic and mutually beneficial partnership between the two countries. This visit is a timely event for us to promote and build good cooperation. The business leaders say they cherish the business ties between China and Japan and hope to use this visit to fulfill plans agreed upon by both countries' leaders, deepening cooperation in digital economy, green development, finance, and elderly care. That was Chen Zhiyuan reporting. Well, this year marks the 60th anniversary since China and France established diplomatic ties. The two countries have spent years working together across diverse areas, including in the field of nuclear power. Cao Chufeng visits the Daya Bay nuclear power plant, the first project of its kind that the two sides collaborated on. This is Daya Bay nuclear power plant, and it marked the beginning of nuclear power cooperation between China and France. Today, a quarter of electricity used by Hong Kong is generated by this plant, which has been running safely for three decades. The construction of the nuclear power station started in 1987 and was completed after seven years in 1994. French companies helped train Chinese engineers to operate the nuclear power plant, and much of the main technologies were also imported from France. China and France have been cooperating with each other on nuclear power for over four decades, and China's technologies used to build and operate nuclear power plant have developed tremendously since then. Today, instead of China mostly learning from France, the two countries can learn from each other. Since Daya Bay, China and France have also collaborated on several other nuclear power projects, such as Taishan Nuclear Power Plant in Guangdong, which is developed and operated together by the two countries. In 2023, the two countries also signed new cooperation agreements in nuclear energy during French President Emmanuel Macron's visit to Beijing, paving the way for further collaboration. That was Cao Chufeng reporting. Coming up, the UN Secretary General's latest call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Airline executives, tourism officials and luxury store owners in America and Europe are disappointed. Chinese travelers, once the biggest spenders on overseas trips, are drawing back from visiting those regions. Where have the big spenders gone? What has led to the lackluster rebound in China's outbound tourism? What does it take to win back Chinese tourists and win them back fast? Find out the answers on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. 19 minutes past the hour. The UN Secretary General's repeated his call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Antonio Guterres made the remarks at a high-level open debate of the Security Council on the Middle East, including on the Palestinian question. No effective humanitarian aid operation can function under the conditions that have been forced on Palestinians in Gaza and those doing everything possible to help them. The quantity of aid is highly insufficient in light of needs. It is fantasy to think that 2.2 million people can survive on aid alone. Basic commodities from the private sector must enter in meaningful quantities, as they did for many years before the current fighting. This is essential to address rising needs and avert both a complete breakdown and ever-mounting death toll. 
The UN chief says the humanitarian situation in Gaza is appalling, with 2.2 million Palestinians facing inhumane and squalid conditions. He says they're struggling to simply make it through another day without proper shelter, heating, sanitary facilities, food, and drinking water. Guterres also warns of spreading disease amid the collapsed health system, with only 16 out of 36 hospitals in the Strip partly functional. He calls for rapid, safe, unhindered, expanded, and sustained humanitarian access throughout Gaza and an end to all violations of international humanitarian law. The UN chief also urges the implementation of a clear political roadmap that will contribute to long-term regional stability. Jody Jacobs reports. It was a packed house inside the UN Security Council chamber on Tuesday. Several foreign ministers participated in the debate on the ongoing crisis in Gaza against the backdrop of Israel's military actions there, a mounting death toll and an escalating humanitarian crisis. Many member states once again called for the war to end. But the overwhelming call was for a two-state solution, with the UN Secretary-General saying any refusal to accept a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict conflict must be firmly rejected. A lasting end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can only come through a two-state solution. Israelis must see their legitimate needs for security materialized and Palestinians must see their legitimate aspirations for a fully independent, viable and sovereign state realized in line with United Nations resolutions, international law and previous agreements. Israel's occupation must end. Addressing the council here in New York, the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Observer State of Palestine said the ongoing war is a premeditated effort to inflict maximum pain on the Palestinian population. He has called for an international peace conference with a clear objective of implementing UN resolutions. The international consensus on two states in this land must be upheld in world and deed. There can be no more pretext for endless delay and obstruction. The disregard for Palestinian life, for international law, for the regional and international will to bring about just and lasting peace should no longer be tolerated. We are running out of time. But Israel once again defended the conflict. Israeli Ambassador Gilad Erdogan said if Hamas turned in those responsible for the October 7th attacks on Israel and returned the hostages, the war would end right away. Erdogan went on to question the attendance of Iran in Tuesday's meeting. While serious debate took place about a two-state solution in the Middle East, with Israel and Palestine living side by side, many member states expressed alarm at the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza and the suffering of the people of Palestine, with many continuing the call for an immediate ceasefire. That was Jody Jacobs reporting. The U.S. Central Command says U.S. forces have conducted strikes against three facilities used by an Iranian-backed militia group in Iraq. The command says the facilities were used by the Kataeb Hezbollah militia group and other uh, Iran-affiliated groups in Iraq. Now, this includes the headquarters, storage, and training locations. Russian strikes in Ukraine in the past 24 hours have killed at least 18 people, wounding more than 130 others. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says more than 200 sites were hit on Tuesday, including 139 dwellings. Thousands were also left without power due to a strike in Kharkiv. Uh, Magumi Lim has more from Kiev. 
Ukraine's two biggest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv, were hit by Russian missile strikes during the early hours on Tuesday. The regions of Dnipropetrovsk and Sumy were also targeted. Ukraine's air force said about half of the 41 missiles launched by Russia were shot down by air defense, but falling debris and blast waves caused damage to several residential buildings and energy infrastructure. Air raid sirens were heard in Kyiv overnight ahead of the incoming missile attack. Rescue workers dug through rubble at a destroyed residential building in Kharkiv to search for survivors. According to the mayor, 30 apartment buildings were damaged. 11,000 people were also left without power in Kharkiv after the strikes damaged several structures, the energy ministry said. Over the nearly two-year-old conflict, Russia has carried out regular airstrikes against cities far behind Ukrainian front lines and Kyiv has repeatedly called for more advanced air defense systems from its western partners. Officials here said earlier this month that Ukraine is facing a shortage of anti-aircraft guided missiles. They acknowledged the interception rate of airstrikes has gone down compared to previous months. The Kremlin commented on the attacks Tuesday saying Russia doesn't target civilian areas and that the strikes were carried out against Ukraine's military production facilities. That was Megumi Lim reporting. The Swedish foreign minister says he has high hopes concerning his country's membership in NATO. Tobias Bilstrom made the remarks after the Turkish parliament endorsed Sweden's NATO membership. Uh, Turkish lawmakers ratified Sweden's NATO accession protocol by 287 votes to 55, with four abstentions. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is expected to sign that bill into law within a few days. Hungary remains the only NATO member that's not approved Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. Sweden and Finland applied to become the 31st and 32nd members of NATO back in 2022. Their accession requires the unanimous approval of all members of the alliance. Mihail Bardavid has more from Turkey. The General Assembly in Turkey, where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's ruling alliance holds a majority, has voted in favor of Sweden's NATO membership bid. With this parliamentary vote, Erdogan is expected to sign it into law in the upcoming days. The parliament discussion on Sweden's NATO membership lasted about four hours. The bill was backed by the ruling AK Party, the nationalist MHP and the main opposition CHP. It was rejected by the opposition nationalist and Islamist parties. Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson welcomed the Turkish parliament's decision and stated that Sweden is one step closer to full membership in NATO on social media platform X. When Sweden and Finland both applied for NATO membership in 2022 in a major shift in their security policy, Turkey had raised objections, citing concerns over their support for Kurdish groups it considers terrorists. Following some negotiations, Finland's membership was ratified by Ankara in March of last year, which paved the way for it to become a member on April 4th. In an effort to address Turkey's concerns, Stockholm introduced a new anti-terrorism bill in 2023 that criminalizes membership to a terrorist organization. Sweden, along with Finland, also lifted some arms restrictions on Turkey. Meanwhile, Ankara also expects the United States Congress to approve the sale of 40 F-16 fighter jets following its endorsement of Sweden to join NATO. This was also discussed with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken during his recent visit to Istanbul. The decision leaves Hungary as the only NATO member state yet to approve Sweden's accession. But on Tuesday, Hungary's prime minister has announced that he has invited his Swedish counterpart to negotiate Sweden's entry to the bloc. An expansion to NATO requires a unanimous approval of its 31 member states. 
That was Michal Bartvid reporting. The European Union's foreign policy chief says there's more to global security than guns and bombs. Security is no longer just a matter of uh, weaponry, not a matter of armies. It's a matter of information, it's a matter of the social fabric and how the citizens get feed with the ideas, the facts, that later will determine their capacity as, uh, as citizens to choose their government and to mark the policy of their nations and the policy of the European Union and influencing on the history of the world. Joseph Borrell made the comments at the Foreign Information Manipulation and Interference Conference in Brussels. 28 minutes past the hour, Beijing down to minus 5 on Wednesday evening. Thursday, we'll see sunny skies. The high is plus 5. Nanchung's down to minus 2, then uh, overcast in 7 tomorrow. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's at 4 degrees this evening. Thursday, we'll see a light rainfall in 15. Vientiane's at 16 overnight, then clouds in 25. Phnom Penh's down to 23 degrees. It's overcast in 34 tomorrow. In Africa, Nairobi, you'll see a light rainfall in 28 degrees on Thursday. Thursday. Kampala is at 20 overnight. Tomorrow, a light rain with the high of 25 degrees Celsius. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China and the Pacific Island nation of Nauru have officially resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. The Chinese president has met in Beijing with the visiting prime minister from Antigua and Barbuda. And the head of the UN has repeated his call for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza while speaking to an open meeting of the UN Security Council. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Wednesday. Still to come. In business, strong revenue and profit numbers for China's state-owned enterprises. In sports, previewing the men's final at the Australian Open. In culture and entertainment, this year's Oscar nominees. To contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. First of all, with today's headline news, here's Do Hongyu. Thank you, Shane. Chinese President Xi Jinping has met Prime Minister Gaston Brown of Antigua and Barbuda. The Caribbean island's leader continues his week-long visit to China after arriving in Beijing on Monday. Earlier, he laid a wreath and the monument to the People's Heroes in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru have resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. A joint communique on the resumption of diplomatic relations has been released. Nauru has recognized that China is the sole legal government representing the whole of China, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of Chinese territory. The two sides agreed to exchange ambassadors as early as possible and to provide each other with all the necessary assistance for the establishment of embassies and their performance of functions in each other's capitals. China has announced 30 new initiatives to protect human rights. The announcement came during the fourth round of the Universal Periodic Review by the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. The head of the Chinese delegation said China considers respecting and protecting human rights a crucial aspect of state governance. 
China adheres to a path of peaceful development, contributing to the cause of world human rights, bearing in mind the future of humanity and well-being of the people. China works to build a community with the shared future of mankind and make the world a better place for all. Chen Xu also said China has pursued a human rights development path that aligns with the current global trends and is suitable for its national conditions. He also said China adheres to a people-centered approach and strives to improve the quality of life for its citizens. Chen told the meeting the Chinese delegation is engaged in constructive dialogue with representatives from various countries in an open and transparent manner. A leading delegation of Japanese business leaders is in Beijing for the first time in four years. The group will hold talks with officials and other business leaders. The UN Secretary General has repeated his call for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Antonio Guterres made the remarks at a high-level open debate of the Security Council on the Middle East, including the Palestinian question. No effective humanitarian aid operation can function under the conditions that have been forced on Palestinians in Gaza and those doing everything possible to help them. The quantity of aid is highly insufficient in light of needs. It is fantasy to think that 2.2 million people can survive on aid alone. Basic commodities from the private sector must enter in meaningful quantities, as they did for many years before the current fighting. This is essential to address rising needs and avert both a complete breakdown and ever-mounting death toll. The UN chief says the humanitarian situation in Gaza is appalling, with 2.2 million Palestinians facing inhumane and squalid conditions. He says they are struggling to simply make it through another day without proper shelter, heating, sanitary facilities, food and drinking water. The U.S. Central Command says U.S. forces have conducted strikes against three facilities used by an Iranian-backed militia group in Iraq. The command says the facilities were used by the Qatayyab Hezbollah militia group and other Iran-affiliated groups in Iraq. This includes the headquarters, storage and training locations. A top European Union official says the EU is vowing to carefully listen to farmers. EU Agricultural Commissioner Janusz Wojciechowski made the remarks amid protests in several European countries against agricultural policies in some of the bloc's members. He says the EU will take into account farmers' voice in their work, especially for the future of common agricultural policy. The food security should be... At the first position as a main function of, of agriculture, we should to avoid uh, regulations which are in collision with, with, with the food security. Stability for the farmers, we need to clear the decision about the future of maybe not, not the uh, common uh, agricultural policy as, as a whole, because this policy based on the, uh, uh, in the treaty, but we need to decision about the future financing of the common agricultural policy. The commissioner asked that stronger budgets for the common agricultural policy and stronger instruments to support farmers in crisis situations are also needed. He calls for an approach based on security, stability, sustainability and solidarity, which should be included in the future of common agricultural policy. Farmers in France, Germany and Romania have launched protests over agriculture policies and remuneration. 
A growing protest by farmers in France is also speaking out against what they consider to be excessive regulation, mounting costs, and other problems. Thank you very much. That was Do Hongyu with Headline News. And this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, strong revenue and profit numbers for China's state-owned enterprises. The Beijing Hour, your window on China and the rest of the world. At 36 past the hour in business, starting with the Chinese mainland markets, they closed higher on Wednesday. The Shanghai Composite increased 1.8 percent. The Shenzhen Component was up by 1 percent. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gained more than 3.5 percent. In Japan, the Nikkei lost eight-tenths of 1 percent. China's central bank says it'll cut the reserve requirement ratio for financial institutions by half a percentage point from February the 5th. According to the People's Bank of China, the move is expected to provide the market with long-term liquidity of 1 trillion yuan, or roughly 140 billion U.S. dollars. On Thursday, the central bank will reduce relending and rediscount interest rates for the rural sector and small businesses by a quarter of a point amid efforts to promote moderate decreases in financing costs. China's top state assets regulator says the country's centrally administered state-owned enterprises saw business revenue and profits grow steadily in 2023. Last year, the SOEs earned 39.8 trillion yuan, or around 5.6 trillion U.S. dollars. Combined investment by the SOEs in fixed assets hit around 5 trillion yuan, that was up 11.4 percent. The research and development spending hit 1.1 trillion yuan, exceeding the 1 trillion mark for the second consecutive year. The commission says it'll work to improve the layout and structure of the state-owned sector and accelerate the construction of a modern industrial system for the high-quality development of the economy. Uh, Gao Ang has details. Officials say central SOEs register an operating revenue of more than 39 trillion yuan, or over 5 trillion U.S. dollars in 2023. They say there's been a heavy emphasis on promotion of strategic emerging industries and science and technology innovation. The central SOE's investment in strategic emerging industries hit more than 2 trillion yuan in 2023, up about 32% year-on-year. Their investment in R&D funds was 1.1 trillion yuan, exceeding 1 trillion yuan for two consecutive years. Officials say SOEs have provided a strong support as China's economy picked up, promoting new productive forces and boosting the resilience of industrial and supply chains were also among the highlights. We will adhere to developing both strategic emerging industries and traditional industries, actively lay out new industries and new tracks, effectively improve the resilience and safety level of the industrial and supply chain, and better support the construction of a modern industrial system. For 2024, officials say the state-owned enterprises will continue to focus on reinforcing the weaklings in industrial chains boosting science and technology innovation and promoting development in key areas such as artificial intelligence and new energy. That was Gao Ang reporting. And for more, Michael Wang spoke to Li Yong, a chief researcher at DNC Think Tank. So the key message that China's SOE regulator wanted to get across today was how the country's state-owned enterprises are working to enhance their core competitiveness. But we also know that China's position is that it's working to encourage and support the development of the private sector as well. So how can private sector companies, Mr. Li, also benefit 
when SOEs become more competitive and invest in more innovation, will we see spillover, for example, in research and development from SOEs to the private sector? The reality is, you know, the relationship between private sector and its own state-owned sectors are not really a kind of a head-on competition. And uh, in, in economic reality, they, they are playing uh, a kind of a positive-sum game instead of a zero-sum game. And, uh, you know, particularly in the area of, uh, of uh, uh, science and uh, technological innovation, which you mentioned earlier, and uh, the uh, state-owned sector invested, uh, uh, you know, more than two trillion RMB for, you know, at least the last six consecutive years, which means that the state-owned, uh, you know, the, the uh, many of the state uh, SOEs, central uh, SOEs, they are focusing their effort on the um, uh, on the innovation track, and uh, their investment is basically related to the past effort to build, uh, for example, uh, uh, important uh, national laboratories. You know, the support for basic science, uh, the basic science. Uh, you know, all those uh, I think uh, would require. A uh, big chunk of the investment that uh, you know private uh, businesses may not uh, be able to uh, uh, you know to uh, to really uh, to support uh, because you know that will take you know that is really a kind of a long-term investment which will see result uh, you know in 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 a lot relatively longer period of time. So if you see that you if you see the results of the innovations by the SOEs and definitely be spilled over uh, to the private sector. China's central SOEs investing over 2 trillion RMB, that's some 300 billion US dollars to support the development of strategic emerging industries last year. So in yuan terms, that is up over 30% year on year. How do you see the role of China's SOEs in developing these industries, these strategic emerging in, uh, industries, and also advancing innovation in areas like AI, like biotech, like new materials? Well, I think, you know, um, you know, this is not really a kind of a solo, uh, meaning that it is not really that uh, the state-owned enterprises are investing in those areas. And I think it is a kind of a, uh, you know, we can see collaborations, cooperations, you know, between state-owned companies uh, and the private sectors in developing, you know, the cutting-edge technologies. And there are a lot of interactions and uh, even uh, the mutual participate, participation technologically, financially, and so on and so forth. So we can actually see, you know, a typical feature of complementarity uh, between uh, the uh, state-owned sector, particularly the centrally, uh, the central SOEs, which prove, uh, play pivotal roles. And of course, uh, they work together you know, to uh, to allow uh, you know, with the private sector to allow the uh, participation of the uh, of the private uh, enterprises uh, in in some of the key projects. And that was Li Yong, chief researcher at DNC Think Tank, analyzing the high quality development of China's state-owned enterprises. 
Official data shows that China's demand for cold chain logistics logged steady growth to reach 350 million tons last year, and that was up 6.1%. The number of refrigerator vehicles in operation was around 432,000, an increase of nearly 13% over the previous year, with new energy refrigerator vehicles gaining in popularity. Last year, investment in cold chain logistics infrastructure rose 8.2% to reach about 58.5 billion yuan, or roughly 8.2 billion U.S. dollars. Qin Yumeng is the Secretary General of the Cold Chain Logistics Professional Committee of the China Federation of Logistics and Purchasing. In 2023, the entire cold chain logistics sector witnessed a steady expansion amid stable operation, which is attributed to consumer demand for quality goods. This means consumers have an increasing demand for quality life, especially for the supply of fresh products. By the end of last year, the capacity of cold storage jumped 8.3% to around 228 million cubic meters, with the proportion of high standard cold storage accounting for 62%. The China Securities Regulatory Commission's vowed to build a capital market that puts investors first and to achieve market stability and confidence. The commission made the remarks to address investor concerns that the capital market has recently been weak and volatile. The commission says protecting the rights and interests of investors, especially small and medium-sized investors, is a top priority in their work. It'll integrate the concept into the entire process of market system design, regulation, and enforcement, as well as create an open, fair, and just market order and rule of law environment. The commission added that it'll vigorously improve the quality of listed companies and ensure that securities and fund institutions play their role in returning value to investors. Official data shows that prices were lower in mid-January compared with early January. Of the 50 surveyed goods, including seamless steel tubes, gasoline, coal, and some chemicals, seven reported higher prices in the period, 39 saw price declines, and the prices of four remained unchanged. Hog prices were down by 1.4%. The figures released every 10 days are based on a survey of nearly 2,000 wholesalers and distributors in 31 provincial-level regions across the country. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, we're previewing the men's final at the Australian Open. The Asian Cup concluded far too early for Chinese fans. China's performance was disappointing and posed a lot of questions about the team's future. Join us on this week's episode of Sideline Story, where we analyze the state of the men's national team. A 47 past the hour now, turning to sports, and here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. At the Australian Open, Yannick Sinner has set up a men's single semi-final against top-ranked Novak Djokovic in a rematch of the ATP Finals. Sinner continued his brilliant form with another straight-sets victory to beat fifth seed Andrei Rublev. The Italian fourth seed hasn't dropped a single set so far at Melbourne Park, but remains humble about facing Djokovic, who hasn't lost an Australian Open semi-final in his entire career. This is why I practice for now, to play against the best players in the world. Um, obviously, has uh, an incredible record here, so for me it's a pleasure to play against him, especially in the final stages of the tournament where, where things are a little bit more interesting. So it's um, going to be tough, 
uh, this I know. I will control the the controllable, which is giving 100%, um, having the right attitude, um, fighting for every ball, and, and then we see the outcome now. Sina did win two of his past three encounters with Djokovic. Earlier, women's second seed Arena Sabalenka needed just 71 minutes to eliminate former French Open champion Barbara Krejcikova 6-2-6-3. The 25-year-old has also not lost a set yet and attributed it to hard work. From a lot of hard work, um, I've been working so hard uh, last year, this preseason, and I think it's all about hard work and give it all um, in the practice court so you're ready for the match, uh, for the matches as good as you can. In the semi-final, Sabalenka will be seeking revenge against Coco Gauff in a rematch of last year's U.S. Open final. The 19-year-old American knocked out Marta Kostyuk. Turning to football in the AFC Asian Cup, Omar Kerbin came off the bench to score a 76th-minute winner as Syria edged India 1-0 to advance to the knockout stage at the tournament for the first time. The qualification of Syria, which finished as one of the four best third-place teams, also ruled out Team China's chance to reach, reach the last 16. The Chinese team has returned to Beijing after finishing its Asian Cup campaign. Elsewhere, Australia was held to a one-all draw with Uzbekistan, but still topped Group B with seven points. Uzbekistan remains undefeated and has sealed second place in the group. Powerhouse Iran won its third game in a row to top Group C after defeating the United Arab Emirates 2-1. Despite last, the UAE secured its place as the runners-up. Palestine clinched its first-ever Asian Cup victory with a 3-0 win against the Hong Kong team and advanced to the last 16 as well. Al-Nasa has postponed its friendly matches in China less than 24 hours before kickoff of the first game. The matches against the Shanghai Xinhua on Wednesday and the Zhejiang FC three days later were called off due to Cristiano Ronaldo's injury. Ronaldo has a calf muscle issue and hasn't played since December. The Portuguese star says he feels sorry about the postponed matches. For me, today is a sad day because I want to say sorry to the Chinese fans, especially in Shenzhen, because in football, some things you cannot control. I come into China since 2003, 2004, so I feel home here, not only because the welcome of the Chinese people, but the culture that you have from me. We have to see this in a good way. We're not canceled the game. We're going to postpone the game. We will be back. Game organizers have promised that the fans will get full refunds for their tickets, flights and hotels. Chelsea has secured a date at Wembley Stadium as the London club reached the English League Cup final and will be seeking the team's first trophy since the new American ownership took charge. Chelsea routed second-tier Middlesbrough 6-1 in the semi-final return leg to overturn a 1-0 first-leg deficit. A 15th-minute own goal tied the score on aggregate before Chelsea added more goals in the first half through Enzo Fernandes, Axel Diasi and Cole Palmer. Coach Mauricio Pochettino now has a chance to win the first championship in English football on February 25th. I am desperate to, to win a title here. We won in, in one year and a half in Paris, three, three trophies, and we want to win here. I am desperate to win, of course. That is the headline. <laughs> Chelsea will face the winner between Liverpool and Fulham. Liverpool goes into Wednesday's return leg with a 2-1 advantage. 
Bobsleigh athlete Chu Xiangyu has won the first sliding medal for China at the Gangwan Winter Youth Olympics. The 16-year-old clinched the bronze in the men's monobob. Team China emerged victorious in the short track mixed relay, finishing the race ahead of the USA and Japan. China also picked up two silver medals in speed skating, as 17-year-olds Pan Baoshu and Liu Yunqi both finished second in the men's and women's 1500 meters. And finally, USA basketball has announced the men's player pool for the Paris Olympics this summer, with most of the big names like LeBron James, Joel Embiid, Stephen Curry, and Kevin Durant on the list. Draymond Green, who helped the U.S. win gold medals at the 2016 and 2021 games, was not among the 41 names. The pool is the first official phase in the process of assembling a 12-player ro- Olympic roster that will be coached by Golden State's Steve Kerr. Team selection will be finalized this spring with. Many of those decisions likely hinging upon player health and how deep their respective teams go in the NBA playoffs. Team USA is in search of a fifth consecutive Olympic gold medal. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, we take a look at this year's Oscar nominees. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X Men: Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi everyone! I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. Fifty-three past the hour now, turning to culture and entertainment. The Academy Awards has officially revealed this year's Oscar nominations, with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer coming away with a leading thirteen nominations. Let's go recruit some scientists. <laughs> Viewed as the best picture frontrunner, it's also received nods for Nolan's direction, as well as acting nods for Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., and Emily Blunt. Uh, Nolan's never won an Academy Award, nor has any of his films won Best Picture. This year's biggest hit, Barbie, was nominated for eight awards, including Best Picture. Ryan Gosling got a nod for Best Supporting Actor and uh, two Best Song Candidates. Uh, But film writer Jake Coyle says it was surprising the film missed nominations in some other categories. No nomination for Greta Gerwig as a director, and Margot Robbie was also uh, shut out of Best Actress. I think the the most surprising there is that Gerwig wasn't nominated for Best Director. I think a lot of people thought she would be. It was a tough category for sure. Uh, somebody good was going to be left out, more than one person, several people. Uh, but that was a surprise. Poor Things was also widely celebrated with 11 nominations, and Killers of the Flower Moon received 10. Uh, Lily Gladstone, star of Killers of the Flower Moon, became the first Native American nominated for Best Actress. It's incredible to be in a film that cements this history in the public eye, um, that makes it accessible for people to see, to get inside of in a way that only film can bring you inside of. And as as brutal as it can be, as as heartbreaking and challenging as it can be, you know, it was it was done in a way that. So many Osage people insisted it be done. Uh, However, fellow uh, Flower Moon star Leonardo DiCaprio was left out of Best Actor. The Oscar ceremony takes place on March 10th. 
major international exhibitions are returning to China, one after another. The Museum of Art Pudong in Shanghai has uh, partnered with Galleria Borghese to present Caravaggio, Wonders of the Italian Baroque. It is China's first exhibition featuring the Italian master. Wang Suen caught up with Francesca Capaletti, the director of the gallery, about how art has become a universal language and timeless experience for both countries. This is the first exhibition featuring Caravaggio in China and drawing a lot of visitors. This is your first time in China also. And can you tell us more about this exhibition? Uh, this exhibition really uh, picks uh, the most beautiful masterpieces from the Galleria Borghese, uh, but also, and I think that this is very uh, good to know, um, they are the paintings that were in the uh, first history of the Galleria Borghese at its origins. So it's a great moment to understand not only the beauty of the Italian collections in the Baroque age, but also the story story of one of the most beautiful collection of art uh, that was renowned in all Europe, in all uh, the world at that time. I can feel that here there is the core of the collection and so uh, a very good example of this great history of the, really the birth of museums in Europe. Uh, as a director of the museums and also the curator of, the, of this exhibition, tell us more about the design of this exhibition. I think that the connection with music is an important one because uh, suggests again uh, this unity of the arts that was uh, one of the main points of the Baroque art. The arts should be uh, should work all together uh, to express wonder. So I think that listening to the music while looking at the paintings is just a great experience for our souls. China and Italy are both countries with long history and yes. a civilization and the Renaissance period actually corresponds to the Ming Dynasty in China. As an envoy of cultural communication, why is those cultural exchanges so important for both countries? We try to enlarge our horizons uh, through uh, understanding of a different uh, kind and the history of arts. And so I think that uh, it's uh, um, a great experience to have changes between uh, cultures that uh, had a really long history and a deep sense of beauty. Uh, but beauty can be different geographically. And that was Wang Suen reporting. We're at 58 past the hour. Checking the forecast before we go in Beijing's down to minus 5 on Wednesday evening. Thursday, it'll be sunny with a high of plus 5. Nanchang's down to minus 2 tonight, then overcast in 7 degrees. Elsewhere in Asia, Islamabad's at 4 this evening. Thursday, we'll see a light rainfall with a high of 15. Vientiane's down to 16 degrees, then cloudy in 25. Phnom Penh's at 23 overnight. Tomorrow's overcast in 34. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, China and the Pacific Island nation of Nauru have officially resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. <laughs>